in his book black box thinking matthew syed talks incredibly about failure and about what can be learned from failure the subheading in this book is marginal gains and the secrets of high performance the most successful people or the most successful stories that he tells in his book are from people who have learned from their failures who didn't just try and hide their failures or try and excuse them or to uh, disregard them it's people who delved into their failures to figure out what went wrong and how they can actually improve things from it so the whole book is filled full of stories full of analogies and full of um, examples of people from all walks of life sports stars people working in business um, medical professions loads and loads of people who have gone out there into the world made mistakes but then actually gotten marginal gains from it they talk about the team sky which is uh, bradley wiggins and uh, chris Froome, who are the uh, who won the tour de france the marginal gains that their team put in place so that they would have every opportunity to win for example they made sure that the cyclists slept on the same mattress every night so they bring their mattress from hotel to hotel as they move through the stages of the Tour de France. They ensured that their rooms were hoovered, right, or vacuumed, I should say, uh, before the, the cyclists went into sleep to reduce any chance of, or to release, not any chance, but to reduce the chance of, of infection, right, so they wouldn't get sick. They made sure that their clothes that they were wearing were in uh, detergents that weren't going to cause skin irritations. All of these things that you just wouldn't, really consider that they would consider when you're watching the tour de france all the things that happen in the background to make sure that when they're on the bike everything that could possibly go right could go right other things then that they talk about in this book is uh, is to do a unilever right who make make lots of things in your house right they make all the detergents and soaps and um household goods ultimately but they talk about, they, Matthew Syed, I should say, talks about a story back in the 1970s where they had a real problem with this particular nozzle, right? Now, if you don't know, and I'm sure you don't, because I didn't, maybe you do know, maybe you're an expert in this, but when you're making detergent, you basically are firing some hot chemicals, some boiling hot chemicals through this nozzle, um, and out the other side of this nozzle comes vapour and powder right and the powder is what you're looking for the powder is what is what the that's what the detergent is don't ask me what the chemicals are i have no idea but back in the 1970s they had this problem where these nozzles were continuously getting blocked and the the grains of detergent were inconsistent right they were all different sizes all kind of lumpy and it didn't look right for for marketing and for you know the, the quality of the product so the combination of the two things the the nozzle continuously getting blocked up, which was obviously impacting uh, the bottom line, and then the quality of the product that was being produced wasn't right either. They needed a solution. So what they decided to do, and Unilever, even back in the 1970s, were a probably a multi-billion dollar company. They had a crack team of mathematicians who were going to science the shit out of this, right? And they were going to make sure that they come up with the best possible nozzle. They were going to solve all sorts of equations. They're going to look at. Uh, they they were experts in what's known as phase transition, right? And phase transition is being an expert in knowing about things when they go from being a a liquid to a gas or to a solid, right? When it's changing, uh, changing state. And needless to say, after all of their work, after all of their theories, after all of their equations had been solved, what they came up with didn't work which is you know th this is kind of this is kind of the, the crux of the book if you like that 
theory will work to a certain extent, but you need to get out into the field and allow mistakes to happen and then learn from the mistakes. And what they, the Unilever people then decided to do is they gave it to some biologists who happened to be experts in knowing the difference between failure and success, which is, I guess, which is a, a big part of what a biologist would do, would be to allow things to fail and learn from that, kind of like the way evolution happens, I suppose. But what they did, these biologists who didn't know anything about phase transitions, didn't know anything about the fancy equations that the mathematicians were trying to solve to come up with this um, new nozzle, what they did is they just took 10 versions that existed and they made small changes to each one and tested them. And whichever one did the best, they would take that one and they would make 10 versions of it with small changes to each one again and test it again. So through iterating through failure, they got to success. So some of these nozzles were quite long, some were short, some had big holes at the end, small holes, some had uh, grooves on the inside, some didn't, they had different shapes as, as, a, as, a, as, as it went the length in the nozzle. And they ultimately came up with this shape that mathematicians would never have come up with. They would never have been able to solve these problems on paper. But by actually getting out into the field and, and testing these nozzles, the, bi the biologists were able to come up with a, a solution that worked way better and was genu genuinely considered to be a success. And that's what this book is about. It's about those marginal gains. And the way you find those marginal gains in any walk of life is through failure is by making sure that you're failing in the correct way. One of the examples it gives in the book is like um, uh, playing golf, right? Imagine you're at a driving range and you're practicing your swing and uh, you put a ball down and you maybe hit a hundred balls and you, you kind of, every time you see where the ball lands, that's not what I was trying to do. I was trying to get it to go this way over here. I, was, I sliced it too much or I hooked it, whatever. And then he says, imagine you were at the driving range playing in pitch black. Imagine you were playing in darkness and all you could see was the ball in front of you and you had no idea where the ball was going and he said that's the difference between learning from failure and not learning from failure when you're in daylight and you can see where the ball went that's failure that's not what i wanted okay let's adjust and go again and the example i would give would be like watching a child learn to walk they don't just stand up, well most children don't just stand up and start walking immediately, they usually stumble and fall, they hold on to things and they, you can see them figuring it out. And that's how they learn, they naturally learn from failure. But at the very beginning of this book he tells a story about a, a 37 year old woman who was going in for a very routine operation and she died. And she died because she had an adverse reaction to the anesthetic, what happened when she got the, it was the anesthetic I think combined with a muscle relaxant. So the muscle relaxant was supposed to be able to allow uh, the, the tube to go down her throat. So while she was getting the operation done, uh, she could uh, still breathe obviously, uh, but she had an adverse reaction to it. So she was under the anesthetic, went under she went, went to sleep with her throat closed up and they couldn't get the tube in. So they're spending a long long time trying to get this tube into her throat and uh, time was ticking by and there was a nurse standing by with a tracheotomy uh, kit I think they, they call it and the tracheotomy is where they make a make an incision in the throat just at the very very top of the chest at the bottom of the throat and they can put the tube in that way so she had this kit ready because it looked like the two doctors or the surgeons whoever it was were struggling to get this tube and they couldn't get the tube into her throat but they kept trying and kept trying but the nurse suggested uh, should we try a tracheotomy and the 
surgeons ignored her. They just, they just kept trying to get this tube into her throat so it was never going to go in. Ultimately, the woman died because they never, they never took the, the nurse's advice. But the nurse also deferred to their expertise. And you hear about this all the time when, it, you know, in uh, aviation, where you listen to the black box recording. And there's been many, many times where the first officer who would be uh, subordinate to the captain... The first officer has a concern and the captain says, no, no, we're fine. Everything is fine. And the first officer says, okay, well, I guess we're fine then. And the plane crashes and everybody dies. There's been so many recordings that over the years that they've the aviation industry have had no choice but to learn from those incidences. They've had no choice but to, to dig into that and to be able to figure out, well, why did the first officer just defer to the captain's expertise? In that moment, maybe the captain just was having a bit of a meltdown or maybe he was feeling stressed. He's human at the end of it all. Why is the captain the one who gets to make the final, final decision about what should happen? Now, in another book or or another article I remember reading many, many years ago, it was something very similar to that where they have to de-ice planes, right? So if a plane is sitting on a runway, uh, ice starts to form in the wings and then the flaps can't go up and down and uh, obviously causes bad things to happen when a plane tries to take off if, if the flaps can't go up or down. So they have to de-ice planes, right? They, they spray all the stuff on it to melt the ice. And the plane had been de-iced, and there was a slight delay in this particular flight. And the first officer made comment, this is all on the black box recording, the first officer made a comment that the ice was reforming on the wings and it looked like it could be a bit dangerous and the captain just kind of brushed him away and kind of said you know that's it's everything's going to be fine and they're motoring down the runway at this stage and the, the first officer still kind of voicing his concerns and the captain says no no we're fine they go to take off and they crash and everybody on the plane died right and, and what's really interesting is the what what the aviation industry i should say learned from that and from other flights like that is that there has to be checklists there has to be things that have to happen that the the captain even though he might have way more flying experience than the first officer the first officer still has to be listened to and they build that into the into the systems and procedures and the checks that they do so that there are less and less aviation incidences he tells a great story in the book at the very near, very near the beginning. I should just start on page thirty six if you're getting the book about the the negative space of failure is what I would call it. I don't think he calls it that in the book, but that's what I would call it: the negative space, the negative data, the things that the the data tells you one thing. What's the data not telling it that could be could be useful to you as well? And he talks about a guy called Abraham Wald, right, who was a mathematician during World War Two. He was asked by the military to help with a fairly crucial is- issue. The the bomber aircraft in Europe were asked to be to take basically huge risks. They were the a 50-50 chance of going out on a, a bombing run and, and there was a 50-50 chance they'd actually come back. And he was asked to look at the, the, the airplanes that did return were riddled with bullet holes. And what he was asked to do was to look at, well, where, where should we be reinforcing these airplanes? And in fairness to the Air Force, they had taken the trouble to examine the returning aircraft to assess the extent of the damage and how they might respond to it. And this was proper black box style behavior, as they called it in the book. They were examining the data from adverse events in order to work out how to improve the safety of the aircraft. And that's a direct quote from the book. I'll just read a little bit here about what it says. To the relief of the Air Force Command, the pattern seemed clear. Many of the planes were riddled with gunfire all over the wings and fuselage but they were not being hit in the cockpit or the tail. 
The longer the incident reporting continued, the clearer the pattern became. The military command came up with what seemed like a perfect plan. They would place armour on the areas of the plane where there were holes. This is where the bullets were impacting and therefore where the planes needed additional protection. And this is where Abraham Wald came in. Can you see what I'm saying about negative space? The planes that had the bullet holes all around the airplane, they were the ones that were returning. It was the planes that were not returning that they needed to see. So what they needed to look at is not where all the bullet holes were, not where the pattern was emerging in all of these airplanes, but to look at where the pattern was blank. And where it was blank was in the cockpit and in the tail part of the airplane. And so if you were to just look at the, the pattern as it emerged, it says here in the book, it says, the observable bullet holes suggested that the area around the cockpit and tail didn't need reinforcing because it was never hit. In fact, the planes that were hit in these places were crashing because this is where they were most vulnerable. And it's a really powerful example because it reveals a couple of key things. And the first is that you have to take into account all of the data, but also the data that you can't immediately see, that negative space. So imagine you're in a sales conversation or imagine you're a, a team leader of, uh, in, in your organization. Your team might be telling you one thing, a potential customer might be telling you one thing, but what are they not telling you? What are they not saying? And that's where you need to look at the negative space. And this is what he talks about, these marginal gains. They have to come from observing the failure, right? The, the things that are not being told, much like the, and it's a pretty good analogy, I think, for a sales conversation or, or like I said, if you're a leader of a particular team, it's to make sure that you're understanding what they're not telling you. And when you understand that, and it's from that kind of, that's where your marginal gains can come from sometimes. They talk about the Toyota production system or TPS in the book as well. And this is again an astonishing way that Toyota run their, their factories. Basically what happens is this, is that if anybody has a problem on the production line, um, if somebody observes an error or they're having a problem, they pull a cord, right? They, they, they basically pull, I assume a red cord. Why wouldn't it be red? And that halts production across the entire factory plant, across the entire factory floor. And what happens then is that senior executives run over, see what's going on, and they fix the problem there. Then if the, the employee is having some particular issue, they help them, the error is assessed, the lessons are learned, and the system's adapted, and on they go. Imagine that, imagine being able to, to work in an organization where problems are not just they're, they're, they're not just kind of noticing on somebody writes it down, but they actually, they're Johnny on the spot, basically. They're, they're going to learn there and then, okay, why did that happen? Is that just an issue with this? Is there, is the employee tired? Is there an issue? Is he left-handed? Is he, and everything set up for a right-handed person? Is it that, what kind of issues are arising that all the theory in the world is never going to tell you? And one of the things they talk about in the book as well is Formula One. And the pit stops. Now, I haven't watched Formula One in many, many a year, but I happened to see it there a while ago, uh, maybe three or four months ago, and I noticed how ridiculously quick the pit stops were. The pit stops used to take, I don't know, eight, ten seconds. These days, they seem to be in, around, in and out in around two or three seconds, which is insanity, right? And it's amazing to watch because if you look back to the... I don't know, the, the 70s and the 80s, back when they, they weren't really doing these kinds of things. They weren't measuring every little bit. 
um, it would take an awful long time. And that could be the difference between winning and losing a race, right? Looking at the, the, the wheel change and putting the fuel into the car. Um, they talk about the, uh, I think it's the Ferrari team or one of the teams, um, no, the Mercedes, Mercedes team actually it is, in the book. And they talk about how they measure every single thing. Every single, uh, you know, the gun that goes on to take the nuts off the car, that has sensors in it to see how long it was it on for. Uh, could it be improved by like a, a, a fraction of a second? Does it need to be on for that long? How long was it torquing for? How long was it releasing the torque for? All of these little bits of data are measured and assessed and analyzed and improved on. And that's how it should be. That's how you go from eight, 10 seconds of a pit stop to two or three seconds of a pit stop. And what they actually look at as well, which is, I thought was mad, was that they look at the angle at which the the person holding the screw gun, the angle at which he or she approaches the actual wheel nut itself. Is that angle correct? Was he off by a couple of degrees? Did, 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 uh, did that cause um, a very, very slight delay? And it's all of those things that they look at that, that that's where those marginal gains come from. The book finishes with a story about David Beckham. I'm sure most people listening would, would know who David Beckham um, is. Uh, and one of the things he talks about is his ability with free kicks, how he scored an awful lot of free kicks, one in particular about, uh, against Greece, which took them into the World Cup, I think, um, with the last kick of the game, pretty much. And he talks about when he, the author talks about when he interviewed David Beckham, and David, you know, David Beckham said that a lot of people just focus on the goals that he scored, but what he sees is a lot of practice behind the scenes, and that practice is what led to him being able to. Uh, to score those free kicks right up um, at the times when they really mattered. And really what it reminded me of, and I think I'll finish on this, is a quote from uh, Michael Jordan. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over again in my life. And that's why I succeed. And that's really the, the, now that quote isn't in the book, but that is the ultimate crux, if you like, the, the, the main message of this book. And the main message for you to take away from this very quick podcast on the book is that failure is inevitable. There's a great quote again from, from Richard Branson, the only guarantee in business is that you and everyone around you is going to make mistakes. And it's about how you interpret those mistakes and it's about how you learn from those mistakes because that's what's ultimately going to lead to your success. There's no point thinking you're going to get something 100% correct every single time that you do it. It's about making sure that you embrace the failures and learn from them in the best way possible. And that's where your marginal gains will come from.